Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us today on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Today, we have another interesting episode for you. We have for you, Kiki, can you go ahead and tell us how you pronounce your first name, your full name, so I don't butcher it? That's not our problem. It's Nkechi James Gilman. Okay, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Simone. I appreciate it. Been looking forward to this. So thank you. Awesome. Awesome. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So if you don't mind sharing with us a bit about yourself personally, professionally, as much as you wish. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me on your show to share a bit of my background, my experience. I am the fiercest immigration attorney. (laughs) I met my husband in law school. And I am an immigrant, right? So those are kind of the things that define me. I moved to the United States about 20 years ago. And once I started my practice, I was committed to carrying on other immigrants like myself through this journey with as little heartache as possible. We are, I'm I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but my clients are scattered all over the United States. And I've been doing this for about 12 years. So it's very much a part of of who I am and I continue to serve our communities and I, it's my job to uplift, empower and liberate as many people as I possibly can. Awesome. I love that pitch that you have there. It's, it's pretty solid. Yeah, a lot of people need your help. I, I can imagine you're getting people from all across the U S we, we definitely do. And a lot of people don't know that immigration law is federal. And so I can represent you even if you were in, Maryland or New York or Texas or Delaware, it does not matter where you are. COVID has taught us that we can conduct business from states apart, miles apart. So I just want people to know that when you're looking for an immigration attorney, make sure you're looking for the best, not just the person closest to you. I wonder then, does the attorney need to be licensed in that state or have things changed? Right. So you want to make sure your attorney is licensed right, wherever they are. However, because immigration law is federal law, attorneys can go across state lines. So I'm licensed in Minnesota, so I'm licensed, but I can practice immigration law because we're practicing before a federal, the federal government. And so I don't have to be licensed in Texas to file your marriage green card or your VAWA case if you live in Texas. Oh, very interesting. Very good. I'm sure people will appreciate that. Right. Okay, so what is your immigrant story? I mean, we're sharing a bit with me before we started the recording. What's the heritage? How far back are you able to find your roots? So our immigrant story, well, as I mentioned, my father is Sierra Leonean. Um, Sierra Leoneans, for the most part, Fritonian Creoles 
are descendants of slaves from African-American slaves, Jamaica and the UK. And my mother uh, is Nigerian. So she's from the Igbo tribe. And we found our way to the United States about 22 years ago. I think everyone remembers the day they got to the U.S. Mine was February 1st, 2000. We arrived a cold winter evening in Cleveland, Ohio. But prior to even getting to the United States, we had moved to the Bahamas. So we spent some time in the Caribbean. And that was an interesting experience for us. And so we came to the U.S., you know, as immigrants from another country being immigrants there to the United States in 2000. So that's kind of our immigration journey. It wasn't easy. We had a lot of bumps along the way. And that's part of what shaped my profession, right? And the approach that I have to fighting for my clients, because I remember us having to fight and power through the denials that we got at the embassy in Nassau, Bahamas, after my dad had already been approved for his J-1 visa, we were dependents and we were denied three times. That was devastating. And so my immigration journey, basically, it informs the way I fight for my clients. So you have quite a, a bit of a mixed background. You were born uh, one place, but then you were raised in a few different countries and probably most of your time now in the United States, who do you really kind of identify as? Let me say not much with Germany, to be frank. I mean, there are some parts that are there, but certainly very much Sierra Leonean and Nigerian for sure. And when we moved to the United States, they were spent some time in Cleveland and they moved to the South. So when my sister and I get together, and even when my mom is around, we definitely have a Southern side to us. That's actually kind of interesting because, you know, they, they, they were there for 20 years and we spent all our summers there, all the holidays. So I'm, I'm, I'm an interesting mixture of uh, many different places. So and I identify with all of them. So where is it? Atlanta? Most people come to Atlanta no, or is there somewhere no, else? No, it wasn't. They were in a tiny town. <laughs> called Petal, Mississippi. The closest big city to that was Hattiesburg. And people know Hattiesburg because there's a big um, football college there. But yeah, so they went to Mississippi. So they were in the South. Wow. Oh yeah. my goodness. So you guys come to Cleveland, Ohio and mm-hmm. to the very deep South. Um, I wonder what, what was that experience like? My parents loved it because it was quiet. It was easy. It was slower right? It was slower paced. My father is a physician. He just retired. And so at the time when they moved to Mississippi, there was like a need for doctors. And so he was like, well, it's warm. It's quiet. It's not much of a hustle and bustle. We'll move there. And so they did. And they had a great 20 years there. And for us, you know, because we were in college, my sister and I and our, my, my brother, and we would go back for summers and, and Christmas and, and holidays. And we just you know, it was a small town. We just, the Walmart was the biggest attraction. (laughs) So it was like, there really wasn't much to do in Petal, Mississippi. And so we just kind of spent a lot of time, uh, you know, at home, going to church and going to the Walmart. That was our experience. (laughs) So quite slowing down when you left college to be at home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very slow, very slow, but very homey, very warm, good food. Okay, good food. The food down south is definitely really good. So we that's all part of that experience that we had. 
typically I ask my guests, what is life like in their home country? I'm not quite sure which one to choose for you. So I, I'm gathering over the years, you might've visited Sierra Leone, gone back to Nigeria, perhaps Germany, you've lived in the Bahamas. What was your you know, formative years like and, and where were you spending your summers and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so I would say my formative years and my most vivid experiences were in Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone, as you may or may not know, is a still kind of a developing country. We certainly have our many setbacks and we've had issues with our infrastructure and our government. Nonetheless, it's a beautiful country, beautiful country, and it's laid back. Another reason why the transition to Mississippi was relatively smooth for my parents. There is a very organic vibe with the children playing. Well, at the time I was growing up, there wasn't much technology. There wasn't any technologies. And so we had to get creative, right? Creative with what we played with, things that we did. There's a lot of community. So in the evenings, you see family members and friends gathering on like their front porch called a veranda, but it's like a, a, a front patio catching up on the day, gossiping and, you know, just kind of, there's a very much of a community feel um, when I was growing up in, in Freetown, Sierra Leone. And, you know, going over to the neighbor's house was not a big deal. Like you didn't have to ask your parents because, you know, their parents knew that you were good. You know, they knew that you were safe. And so, yeah, I, my childhood was very free, right? We explored without trepidation. And I, I think that it was good because now I'm able to kind of venture out and do things without much fear. I can relate to that freedom too, growing up in Jamaica and having lots of land to explore from our family land and our neighbors likewise, and people coming to our home and we played in the afternoon and, you know, people would gather on our property. And so we weren't really allowed to spend time at other people's homes. My family was just really strict like that. Right. Uh, we, if my grandmother would say, you go and you do this and you come right back. And if we stayed mm -hmm. longer than she thought it would take us, it would be a problem, <laughs> you know, just to protect us girls and, and kids and so forth. But um, I can relate to the freedom of just, you know, so much space around you, fruit. And I totally get that veranda. We, we, I grew up with a veranda as well. So I've been to Freetown. I was there one summer back in oh. 2000. I want to say 2010. I did an internship okay. with the U.S. Embassy. And I was up at, they, they moved it from downtown to up in the hills there. It's Hill Station, right? Yes, yeah, the Hill Station. And I just mm -hmm. remember having so much rain. I had never seen so much rain in my life. It <laughs> rained, it rained, it rained. So for our guests who've never been to Sierra Leone, what is life like in Sierra Leone? What are fun things that you do? Food, culture, music, and, mm -hmm. and I'm sure Creole is one of, I can remember was one of the main dialects, but what, what are the different languages that are spoken? So national language is English because it's an Anglophone country and we have Creole, we have Timene, we have Mende, we have Sosu, you have Mandingo and some other, you know, indigenous languages. The food in Sierra Leone is delectable, right? So of course we have the national treasure, jollof rice. We're not going get, to get into which country has the best jollof. One of our main dishes is cassava leaves. I'm pretty sure you probably tried it. I mean, yes. Yes. So thieves is a just a 
you know, mouthwatering mixture of spices and meats and okra and vegetables and peanut butter. And it's just amazing and served with rice. That is, I think, our national treasure in Sierra Leone. It's the epitome of Sierra Leonean food. With music, we have a different sounds and vibes. And certainly now the Nigerian music, Afrobeats has taken over. So frankly, in Sierra Leone, it's Afrobeats. Um, and then you have like the drums and the, the different um, cultural sounds and music. As far as, you know, what people do for fun, the beach is a big attraction. I don't know if you had a chance to go there while you were there. No, probably not because it was raining, right? Um, I did. I did go okay. a few times. I went running on the beach. Okay. So that was fun. I know Lumley, right? Lumley Beach, it has that. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, Serolinans can be found in the evenings just hanging out either at home and having friends over. There's a lot of keep company. I don't know if you heard that ter- term keep company, like keeping company, like hanging out with close friends and family, typically over a meal or some drinks, or they go out to bars and restaurants and kind of pass their time. It's a fun place, depending on who you are and where you fall on the socioeconomic scale. It could be a fun place to live or just a fun place to visit. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember trying to learn Creole, how the body and, and things like that. Uh, the body the body well or the body fine. And that was cool. I, I really love to try like local lingos wherever I go. So, okay, yeah. well, thanks for that. I even actually met some of the folks from the Freetown, is it the Freetown players or Freetown, a group of uh, performers yeah. that are local there yeah. to the... That's right. Free, I think, I don't know if it's Freetown or Freetown players, but yeah, they're like a musical group with the drums and... Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It was it was cool. Very cool. I have found memories of being there mm-hmm. and the rain. I will never forget that. I've never seen so much rain. <laughs> it's it's tough. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about your formative years. And so when you transition to the US and going through your immigration debacle there from the uh the Bahamas. Did you attend high school here in the U.S.? And what was that experience like transitioning into, uh, how do you want to put it, I guess, assimilating to the American culture? What was that like? I went to high school in the Bahamas. Um, We moved to the Bahamas, I think, was my grade. And so I did my high school there. But when I moved to the United States, it was time for college. And to be honest, the transition was fine because... At college, it was a mix, right? I went to Kent State University in Ohio, massive university. Everyone there was from somewhere else. Lots of international students. Even if you were international, you were coming from a different state. It was still new, right? Because you're leaving your little cove and your little comfort zone of high school and all the friends that you went to elementary school with and middle school. Now you're in this big university. So for me, my you know adjustment was fine. Um, I think like my sister had a bit of a different experience because she came in and she had to do like the last year high school. And I think that was a bit of a challenge for her. But for me, it was it was fine because everyone there was new. And did you have an American dream then? Of You know, this is the land of opportunity, as most people from the developing world have a perception of. Or did your parents have 
So, you know, we're saying, okay, daughter, um, this is our uh, dream for you. And we hope that you, you know, you do this or you study this lawyer, doctor, or was this a personal decision or was this from your parents? Because I know how it is with immigrant parents. It's either a lawyer or doctor, no other option. Like my dad's a physician, but my decision to be a lawyer was something that was set many, many years ago when I was much younger. And so, no, it wasn't them, but they supported me and my, my sister's a physician and they supported supported our, our dreams or our dream to, you know, achieve what we have. And, but it was, there was never this pressure to be one thing or the other. As far as the American dream, to be honest, at first, I didn't have time to dream to me. I was just like, I need to get through university. I'm an F1 student because I, we, we entered as J2 dependents, dependent of my, of our dad's visa. And then I switched over to an F1 visa that was difficult because as an F1 student, you can't do anything, right? You can't work off campus. Even when you work on campus, you're limited to 20 hours. And so I didn't have time to dream. I was just like, I need to just figure out how to keep my bank account in the positive, right? Because I couldn't work. But as time went on, I started to see things a little clearer. And I was like, you know what? I want to go to law school in the United States. I want to have a successful career, I want to raise, you know, have a family, raise a family here and have access to, to dream unlimitedly. Right. And so it, it took a while to start to kind of figure out where I wanted to go. But I think I think I figured it out. I think. <laughs> well, you sound pretty happy with your profession and being able to help people. So it sounds mm-hmm. like it's feeding your soul and you're happy with what you're doing. Oh, I am very happy with what I'm doing. I have practiced for 12 years and I initially, when I started practicing, it was kind of, you know, managing, being a mom, being a wife and an attorney. And in the last five years, things have really leveled out and I'm seeing the fruits of my labor. I am changing lives of my clients. I am saving lives because I also represent victims of domestic violence. So when they come to me because their U.S. citizen or green card holder spouse is abusive and controlling them and refusing to file for them and using the process to manipulate and control and abuse, I have to come in and get them out of it, essentially, and put power back and control in their hands. And I see the transformation. And that is powerful. That's powerful. I read the book 1L as I was leaving undergrad and was considering, should I do, should I go to law school? And at the time, you know, unfortunately I decided, hey, I don't really think I have the energy to pour into going through that first year and wish I had considered it before. But, you know, as immigrant children, we know we do the practical until we get where we can get to a higher level on Maslow's list of laws, right? Like self-actualization mm-hmm. and so forth. It's awesome that it's come in the same profession for you. Some people have to change profession and have started new professions as they've gotten older because they've done the practical earlier on in their career. So that's awesome mm-hmm. to hear. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Were there any cultural or other challenges that came along as you adjusted to the American culture? Was there anything shocking that was so different from the uh, African culture or countries that you've been exposed and had an uh, impact on who you are as a person? I think for me, one of the most difficult things was navigating the immigration system, to be honest. 
and realizing, because I don't think when you're not in the United States, you don't realize how hard it is once you're here to eventually get to get your green card and get your citizenship. So navigating that on my own before I became an attorney was hard. And seeing other family members having to go through hell because they had lawyers who missed the step. (laughs) And then now they found themselves out of the U.S. and out of the U.S. for a month and two months and a year, two years, three years. That was scary. Eventually, things leveled out. But I think it just taught me that this is a country that has systems in place. And you have to make sure you understand every step of the way. I think there are other countries where it's more lackadaisical, it's more lazy fair, and there's not much of record keeping. That's not how it works here. So that was really interesting to kind of draw home and pay attention to as I navigated the U.S. system. And a question that I had as I was making my previous comment was, is it possible for somebody later on in life to transition to doing immigration law if they didn't start out earlier in life? And now that you've had years of experience, what do you think? Absolutely. My dad moved to the United States at 55 and started all over. Well, not all over, you know, starting with the, the medical, his medical degree, his internship. So yes, I think anyone can start their immigration practice, you mean as an attorney or like a, a paralegal or just working in the immigration space? Because immigration is complicated, right? It's taken me 10, 12 years to really, really get a solid handle. I'm still learning, but I don't think it's ever too late for anyone to ever start anything, as long as you're committed and you're in it for the right reasons. Because I'm going to be really frank, there are a lot of attorneys that do not serve immigrants well. And I know this because we had lawyers <laughs> throughout our process. And I look at how things were handled and I look at how I handle my clients and it's night and day. And so just if you're going to go into immigration, make sure you understand that you're dealing with people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different life experiences. They're coming to you heavy, hard, and you know they've been through so much. You got to move with kindness and compassion, certainly I don't expect that you run a nonprofit, but um, even if it's a for business practice that you have, as I do, you still can can move with compassion and kindness. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about somebody who is, it's in the back of my mind. I've always wondered, should I uh, ever go back to law school and how much time would it take for me to invest to go and get my law degree at this um, juncture in my career? And, you know, is it possible? So, you know, I'm just wondering, picking your brain. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I, I don't think it's ever impossible. I think you can definitely do it. I think you can. Have you been able to show up as your authentic immigrant self uh, in your practice, in social settings, otherwise, as you move through this American culture? It's the only way I show up. It's literally, I am as authentic as I come. Showing up as your authentic self, you have to be grounded in who you are. And that's one thing my mother really instilled in us to, and my, my father, both, I mean, different cultures, but still who we were, where we're from, we are from good pedigree. We are from, um, a solid background. Our family 
values. And so when I show up, I am not showing up to be, to blend in. And I don't, when I, when I show up, I, you know, I'm there. (laughs) So I stand out and I think people appreciate that. Did you start your own practice from the beginning or did you actually work with other practices to start off your career? I did not. So I started my practice own and it took a while to build it. Now, certainly I had mentors, right? I had other colleagues that have been doing it a lot longer than I had. And they were kind of there to answer my questions. So I navigated, but you know, I built this on my own with no partners. And now I have an associate attorney that works um, for me and I have a team of 15, but I built this on my own. Right. That's awesome. Congratulations. I'm sure yeah. that you must feel quite accomplished that hopefully you can kind of oh, take a deep breath at this point. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so we came I came across you on LinkedIn where, as you made a post about immigrants are not poor. Right. Because right. you had an interaction with somebody regarding a few immigrants I think you were dealing with and some payments mm-hmm. and, and uh, you wanted to make a point. Are you able to share about what was the scenario and why you took the perspective to speak up to say, you know, immigrants come with value and it's not fear for folks to think that we're all coming to the table looking for handouts? Absolutely. I think you're referring to the incident where there's a nonprofit that was offering to pay um, legal fees and farm fees. And so I had clients that had come to me, private clients, and their cases were in process. And they came to me and said, you know, there's a nonprofit that wants to pay. I'm like, sure, here's your balance. Take it over to them and they can pay that. And the director or the executive director reached out to me and basically told me that I was overcharging (laughs) and that these were vulnerable, poor immigrants. And that I should waive the entire balance. And I thought it was an affront. I thought it was absolutely out of line because I am not, you know, these, they can make a decision. And I don't think that immigrants are always looking for handouts. I think they're hardworking. I know they're hardworking. And I think a lot of attorneys or businesses just give the bare minimum because they think that that's what they deserve. Um, I think that they deserve more. And they want more, right? And they're willing to pay for more. Ultimately, everyone wants to come to the table and feel respected and treated with dignity. And so I I made that post just to kind of put it out there and, and, and just, again, bring awareness. Like these people are not just out here looking for the bare minimum service. Treat them with respect and give them the best because they deserve it. Right. And people will pay for it. From my experience, people are forking out thousands of dollars, whether it's to lawyers or others who can help them. They're willing to pay to get through the immigration process. So I, I'm kind of surprised because typically people will pay for their filing fees, whatever they need to do to get it done. They do. I know when we were navigating our process even through my parents, they found the money, right? At that time, it was hard because my mother wasn't working, but still they made it work. And then when I got my green card through my husband, we were both attorneys at the time, but we were just coming out of law school. We had just gotten our license. We were not financially hard, but we hired a lawyer and paid the lawyer 
to file my green card because it wasn't anything that we were going to play around with, even though we were both attorneys. I think we need to get away, and which is why this platform exists. Is right. so there are two terms out there. Some people like to refer to themselves as, as uh, to themselves as expat. Mm-hmm. You you know, kind of hinting that you come over with value, whether it's your education or some professional expertise that you're bringing to the country. And then on the other hand, there's the word immigrant that tends to have. Uh, somewhat of a negative connotation where it's, you, you know, you're, ta- you're thinking about undocumented, illegal, and the new term is undo- undocumented non-citizens. I think people are using these days. Most people who come across, I did an episode where I spoke about the value that immigrants are, do- are adding. And most people who come into the United States enter legally. I just don't get where this this word immigration or immigrant has taken on this negative connotation. It's and I'm here to just like break it down because it's not true. <laughs> it's not. It, it absolutely is not. And I think for a lot of people, when they hear immigrant, they hear undocumented. Like literally, it's like you can't be an immigrant in the United States and have legal status. Like you can legal and they think legal status only means having a green card. That's not it. You can be here as an F1 and that is it. That is a legal status. It's not a permanent status. You can be here on a B1, B2 for six months and that is legal status. And so it's just about educating and and clearing out these, a lot of misconceptions, which is why these platforms are important. And I show up and a lot of colleagues that look like me, women, black women, immigrants, or of immigrant descent, showing up and educating and connecting with other immigrants that look like us. Exactly, exactly, precisely. Um, So it said that success leaves clues. And I'm wondering, what do you know now that you wish that you knew at the start of your immigrant journey? I've never really thought about that, to be very, very honest with you. uh, What I would say is, with the people that come to me, what I try to tell them now that I'm an attorney and I've done this for a long time and I'm at this point in my life is you want to make sure you're not playing Russian roulette or gambling with your immigration journey. Right. I did not. So it's not like I, I, you know, it's not like I I'm saying this because I made a mistake. I'm saying this because I see it in my clients. I see people that come to me and they've made mistakes because they thought, Oh, this is easy. These were just forms. This is not a big deal. And they find themselves in immigration court. And now we are fighting sometimes an uphill battle because so much has happened. And so to kind of, you know, maybe tweak your question a bit, I would tell everyone if they're starting their immigration journey, this is your life. There's nothing you can accomplish in the United States without legal status. Your potential is capped when you don't have legal status. Your potential is unlimited when you have legal status, right? And so make the invest in yourself. Invest in yourself and your future self will thank you. That's what I would oh, say. Oh, yes, awesome. Well said. Well said. So to wrap up our time together, 
what advice, um, you know, I know outside of what you've just said that you, mm-hmm. you may have for new people coming over, people who are on the other side, because we have people listening from every country you can imagine around the world who may be oh, considering yeah. migrating to the U.S. Like, what advice would you give to them about the, uh, America and this land that, you know, runs with honey and whatever else that they see in Hollywood? <laughs> Well, you know, you, give people a reality check about what life is and what advice you would may, you may offer. Yeah. No, what I will say is I think in the United States, if you are committed to a goal and you are committed to a dream and you work really hard, certainly there are elements that, are, that can be out of our control. But I would say that I've seen hard work get people to where they need to be or where they want to be, not need to be. Um, when you're coming to the United States, make sure that your all your information is correct. Do not lie on any application because lying on any application will most certainly haunt you and easily, you know, kind of lead you down a path that'll take you back to where you started. Never, ever, ever, ever say you're a United States citizen before you actually are one. That is one of the cardinal sins. And, you know, coming to the United States, it's, it's a country, it's a country of liberties, you know, it's a country of opportunity. It's a country where, as I said, if you work hard, everything else being equal, I think you're able to reach the goals that you set for yourself. And so do everything that you possibly can that's legal (laughs) to get here. If this is where you want to be. And once you're here, just work hard. The last thing I would ask is, uh, we have a final segment called the faux pas. Is there anything socially that you would uh, recommend for people who are here coming here to keep them out of hot water socially? Like, don't do this. Don't say this. You know, like they say, don't discuss religion or politics. That's a big one. Uh, you may have something else coming from the legal side. You just mentioned don't ever claim to be a U.S. citizen. That's hey. a cardinal sin. Anything else just to wrap up and then just tell people how to find your services and and how they can connect with you if they need to hire you as an attorney to help them in their immigration process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, I think I said it in my my previous response is don't think to be a United States citizen, stay out of trouble. Like really, I I know a lot of times when you're in the United States there, you know, it's tempting when you don't have a work permit to engage in things like just don't anything that doesn't look right, avoid it. Because the thing is, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. It's going to haunt you. And it could really um, jeopardize your future in the United States. As far as finding me. So we are the Gilman immigration law firm. Uh, We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and we have a website. You can find me on all those platforms. And we handle matters, marriage green card cases. We handle a lot of difficult marriage green card cases. And we do the self-petition cases for victims of domestic violence. We do the trafficking cases for T visas for persons in the United States who've been trafficked. And we also do visas for victims of crime. We also do consular processing cases and asylum. Wow, quite a gamut. That's why you have a team of 15 plus, yes? (laughs) <laughs> right. But the thing is, all those areas overlap because they're mostly all humanitarian. And so it's kind of, you know, people who've been harmed, right? Vulnerable people of our society who've been harmed. So they, they kind of overlap. Okay. All right. So you're helping 
people who are uh, in desperate need of mm-hmm. a safe place to yep. start over right. and um, as opposed to people who commit fraud within the system and are trying to figure out how do I get myself out of the wrongdoing that I have now put myself in. So I'm glad you underlined that. Right. I mean, we also help. I mean, there are cases where there may have been some fraud in the past. We also do those because sometimes those overlap with because we have some VAWA clients who enter the United States with a fraudulent passport. We do waivers for those too. It all depends. We take a holistic view at your facts, your history, and make a determination as to whether or not we can assist you. So I thank you so much for your time. This has been great listening to your journey. Thank you so much for your time, Kiki, and I wish you much success. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.